This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Alice Clark Platts, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, really, really interesting work. Um, I mean, I just, anyway, I'll, I'll introduce you um, and then we'll talk about uh, your new book. Um, Alice is a former human rights lawyer who worked at the UN International Criminal Tribunal in connection with the Rwanda genocide and on, and on cases involving Winnie Mandela and Snoop Dogg. Now, do you know, I had to do a little bit of research around Snoop Dogg. <laughs> he's a bad boy. Well, he's had his moments. <laughs> he has had his moments. Winnie, I knew all about. <laughs> she is also the author of The Police Procedurals, Bitter Fruits and The Taken, the later of which was shortlisted for the Best Police Procedural in the Dead Good Reader Awards 2017. Alice, is also, Alice also writes short stories which have been published in numerous anthologies. Her latest book is The Flower Girls, a tense, atmospheric and utterly chilling, and it is utterly chilling, tale of two young sisters and one act of unparalleled horror that has far-reaching and damning consequences. The Flower Girls has been widely praised and described as one of the most exciting crime releases of 2019. I mean, it is really, really confronting. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, because it is fiction, but yes. it's, it's based on non-fiction, isn't it? It's it's not really based on it. I mean, I think there has been an obvious comparison that people have made with a case that happened in the UK in the yeah. early 90s, um, which was the murder of toddler Jamie Bulger. Um, and he was murdered by two 10-year-old boys who were not related. They were just friends. Um, so, yes, there, there is you know that that was two young boys murdering a younger child um and that obviously formed part of my research but this is not a fictionalized account of that story no. um I, I read a lot about it but i also read a lot about other crimes um involving children young children um children harming each other um so and tell talk to me about that because I, i've got to say before i started reading the book and doing the research i didn't think that happened that often oh it does yeah it does it does it's very it's a lot more common than perhaps we'd like to think um and I think for some reason the media really leapt on this on the murder of Jamie Bulger and that became a you know hugely sort of talked about subject but no there there've been many many instances of children harming other children um and I looked into that a lot when I was researching So what's the youngest we've got that we know about Oh, I mean, a pretty young. I mean, I think, you know, definitely sort of four, five, six, something along those lines. See, um, that's unfathomable to me. Yeah, I think it's because, and 
I am no psychologist, no. but I have looked into the, you know, sort of cognitive psychology. And I think you can look at the development of the human brain. And um, up until about age seven or eight, the ego in a, in a human being is absolutely rampant, which is children need that because they need to be able to survive. So they need to be able to just think only of themselves, which means that without the normal parameters of a, of a normal, in quotation marks, um, family you know who say this is wrong or this is right or don't touch that because you'll burn yourself or don't stick that knife into somebody because you'll harm them if they don't have those kind of um borders i think um and given a, a certain set of circumstances you know i don't think it's actually that surprising that children will behave like that you know but there is a strength that comes with with hurting another like i often think and you know we all watch crime shows and you know it seems so simple to kill someone but it actually isn't i think that it requires a lot of certainly a lot of emotional force but physical force as well like it's not an easy task to do is it no i agree and i and and, and mentally too but yes. I, I think then um yeah. yes With children i mean it's it, I mean, if you're going to put your hand over a mouth of a child, that's physical. That's but I think if you look in the way in which these crimes um, occur, they're not they're, they're not premeditated. No. They're not something that's um, going to involve, you know, poison or, um, you know, they're generally they ask sort of spur of the moment actions. And I mean, if you look at the Bulger case, I mean, I think there was a lot of... How did they kill him? They beat him. I mean, I think that they just and kept hitting him until he died. Yeah, that I mean, that was that's the most common way that these crimes occur, um, okay. and I think there is a lot often to do with that sort of wanting to exercise control over a younger child. Often, um, you know, those children in particular had come from pretty um, negligent families where they were the youngest in like sort of more than five, six, seven, eight. I think Robert Thompson came from ten children. Um, and there was obviously a kind of sort of tribal atmosphere going on in his family home. And it is about exerting control over somebody younger to make yourself feel like you've got some control over your life. I'm not excusing any no, of these no. behaviours at yeah. all. Um, but I think it's really interesting to try and work out why they're happening, because then obviously we can try and prevent them happening in the future. So talk to me about the flower girls. Set the premise, set the tone. So um, 20 years ago, um, two, three children, three little girls went out to play and only two come back. And one of them, Laurel, who's age 10, is convicted of the murder of the little girl, um, Kirsty, who was murdered. Her younger sister, Laurel's younger sister, Rose, um, was age six. And in under UK law, you can't be convicted of a crime under the age of 10. You can't be held criminally culpable. Right. So Laurel is... Um, sent to prison at her majesty's pleasure and rose is given a new identity and is allowed to live a, a so-called normal life um fast forward 20 years um in a snowy hotel in devon new mm. year's eve rose now called hazel is there with her partner and his stepdaughter and another five-year-old child goes missing and the, the the premise takes it from the modern day um, scenario of of Georgie, the little girl who goes missing, and Hazel's obviously terrified that if anyone finds out her identity, she will be considered a suspect. Mm. And then at the same time, Laurel is coming up for parole, and so we have the argument that the original victim, Kirsty's family, um, want to keep her in prison. They don't want her to be ever released. 
Um, and then we also have the elements of the media. And we have a journalist who's um, very excited to discover that Hazel's true identity and wants to make his fortune based on bringing the flower girls back together again. Mm-hmm. It's so much in it. Um, but also, I, I, the, the characters were difficult to like. It was really... Um, it's a page turner, but it's disturbing at every point, isn't it? Is it? And also, it made me question, like, say, with adults, and I don't know if it's the same thing, but it is that men are more likely to kill than women. Is it the same with children? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I... I because I, I thought that was just particularly harrowing, the fact that they were girls. That they were girls. But, I mean, I suppose that's in our own, the way our, our brains are kind of taught to believe yeah. in things. Um I don't see why it should be any different that, that you know, I think if you if you put a child in certain circumstances, I don't see why. It, it matters on gender. No, I, I guess with adults it matters um, because, you know, men are physically stronger than women and it's often the case. Yeah, but I mean, this is this is with a with a two-year-old exactly. and they're 10. I mean, they are physically stronger than, than the little yeah, girl who's so killed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, there's so much in it. Okay, I want to talk about what brought you to write this book. Mm-hmm. So, human rights lawyer. Yeah. Talk to me about that and talk to me about where you grew up and how you came to be a human rights lawyer. So, I grew up in London yeah. um, and I was the only child of a of an actress mother and a writer father. And then when I decided well, to... Well, become... you, you did Destiny's already well, sorted. I, well, apart from that... I announced that I wanted to become a lawyer and they thought I was the black sheep of the family. They didn't know what to make of me. And not only was I going to be a lawyer, but I was going to go and work in the city to begin with. I was going to, you know, work as a city lawyer. They just did not know what, I mean, I think they were embarrassed to tell their friends what they'd produced. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because it's usually the other way around, isn't it? You know, the the children of, say, lawyers or doctors who want to be writers or actors. Yes, exactly. No, no, no. So they, they didn't know what to make of me. And then um, I ended up leaving the city firm and going to work for the government. And that was when I became a litigator. And I got very interested in, um, at that time, the Human Rights Act was kind of very in the forefront of law. And so I got really interested in that. So I went and did a master's in human rights law. And that was when I did my time at the tribunal in Rwanda, well, in Tanzania, but concerning... Talk to me about what that, and how is it, how is human rights law different to regular law? Talk to me about that. Um, a lot of us, you know, non-law people out there don't know that. Yeah, I mean, human rights law is is um, not usually used as a means of its own. No. So you would use it in in another case to kind of supplement um, the the original law that you're arguing about. Um, so you know, things like freedom of speech or um, the, the things like that. They would come in. And you would say, you know, this is a kind of secondary level. Of course, there are huge cases based on human rights that go all the way up to the Supreme Court. This is in the UK. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe Australia might be the same, I guess. But um, it's just it's a fascinating area because it's always looking at what what does it mean to be human? That's what I really enjoy about it and um, and I could see that coming through the book yes and yes. so I mean one of the, the elements that comes through this book is you know how long do you keep a person in prison for you know how when are, when are they ever actually punished you know when is it enough 
maybe it's forever. I don't know, but I'm just presenting this as an argument. You know, what do people think? I often ask ask that question. You you read, you know, there's a very famous case here of Chappelle Corby, who was yes, imprisoned, you know, in Bali, in Bali. Yeah. And do you know, I really felt halfway through that enough. Whether she was guilty or innocent, enough was enough. I mean, to have spent two years there is bad enough. Yeah. But then a lot of people don't think that way. No, lo- lots of people don't. And also, no. I think what I wanted to explore was if you are a family member of somebody who's been a victim of a brutal yeah. murder, a brutal crime, your life will never be the same again. Never. How do you let that go? Can you let it go? Or do you spend the rest of your life sort of fighting for the victim? So the, the character Joanna Denton in The Flower Girls is the aunt of Kirsty who was murdered. And she becomes a kind of campaigner and that's what she does. She spends her life you know, sort of banging this drum and saying Laurel should never, ever be released from prison. And her argument is Kirsty's life was taken away from her. Why should Laurel have mm. a life? Mm. I think with Charles Manson, that the parents of her have campaigned all their life to keep him in prison. To keep him inside. And, and, yeah. and maybe that's right and maybe that helps them. But I wonder if the... Um, if that is sort of preventing you as a person from moving on. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I think it's just an interesting discussion and I know that everybody will have very different views Mm. about it because in the end, actually, the mother of, in my book, the mother of Kirsty does want to move on and she says to her sister, you know, it's enough. I I can't do this anymore. Mm. And the sister says... But then, but then what do we have, you know? What, then what do we do? It becomes their life. It, be, it has become their life. And um, and she says, the only thing that you can do if you let it go is you have to forgive. And she says, I can't forgive. I can't. Yeah. So, it's you know, it sort of feels like this black or white, either you let it go yeah. or you carry on. Yeah. And um, I think mm. it's really, really hard. Mm. I do too. I, I think it's so complex. Human nature is complex when it comes to grief in itself, mm. let alone murder. I mean, that's another category entirely. Okay, so you're a human rights lawyer and so you worked with Winnie Mandela. Is well, I right? didn't work with her. <laughs> yeah. Tell me no. what you did there. Well, I mean, it was... it's. Um, it was a case where one of her um, football club boys, um, I used to work in immigration, and so it was about whether he um, okay, was, had been sort of tortured as part of that. So right. it was a case to do with that. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and then when did you start thinking about writing? Because you've been writing for a long time. If this is your first fiction. No, this, this is, is my like this third. is third. Oh, okay, yeah, third yeah. fiction. Yeah. So when did you start thinking about writing? I think I always had i mean as i've said you know my, my that's dad going is back a, to your roots, yes yeah. and you know i've always loved reading and read a lot of books and i think i have always sort of scribbled ideas down and um but you know life you're busy and you don't have time to do it ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah. And then when we moved to Singapore, I was pregnant with um, our youngest daughter. And I essentially had my maternity leave um, in Singapore. We were supposed to only be there for just over a year. And how long have you been there now? Eight years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it was my, my eldest was at nursery. I had India as the baby. And, you know, when she slept, I kind of, I, I did use that time. And I, I, I remember thinking to myself, I've got to write 90,000 words and those words may be terrible, but if I have 90,000 of them, then I've written a book, you know, and mm. I can then do something with them, make them try and make them better. So and whenever I could, I just sat down and would write and it just was, it felt like filling, you know, up a kind of jar of pennies, you know, and just getting those words in. And then I, I started up the Singapore Writers Group, which we now have, I mean, over like 2,000 wider members. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that's been a real inspiration and, and met some fantastic writers yeah. there. Talk to me about that because that's the craft of writing, isn't it? I mean, you have a story, but it's about how you actually get to 90,000 words. Mm. I mean, did you have any idea of how you did that? No, but I... Um, no, but I think once you become interested, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Um, I didn't. I didn't have any clue about you know. I mean, there's hundreds of books written about story structure, and you've yeah. got to hit point A, but then you get point B before the end of chapter three or whatever it is. I've never read any of that sort of thing. Um, but I, I have read a lot of books, you know. Yeah. So I kind of in my head I know what what a good story is and what I was sort of aiming for. Um, and that's always my advice to anybody who wants to start writing is you have to read and read and read and read. Um, and then what I did do actually was I joined um, Curtis Brown is a, a UK agency, literary agency. Um, I'm sure they're here actually. They are. Yeah. They are. Um, and they, they yeah, they started an online novel writing course, which was just three months um, with, with, nine other writers but you had to apply to get on it and I got on it and that was a real boost to my confidence um and it made me think well okay I'm not writing complete rubbish um and that course sort of just yeah sort of just started the whole journey really and then I was talking to other writers and we were all kind of you start you know sharing bits of information about how do you get an agent how do you you know what are what is publishing how do you get an audience somebody reads your work and somebody reads your book you're also really importantly you learn how to critique other people's writing which i think again if you're going to be a good writer you need to know what works and what doesn't work and also how to express that in a way that's not going to make people cry yeah (laughs) um so yeah the whole thing was just really that you know that those first sort of three or four years from moving to Singapore was a huge learning curve, which I loved. I really yeah. loved it. And that was before anything was published or I'd got an agent or anything. Yeah. Yeah. And so how was it then that you got to something that you thought was right? How did you then get that published? Well, the first hurdle was getting an agent. Yes. Um, which... So it, that didn't come with your writing course? No, really? no. No. So, I mean, it was... It was 
it was an odd story and I you know I don't it kind of just all sort of fell into place a bit like kismet but yeah I um I won a couple of competitions with some manuscript like I, I had a finished manuscript and then I had a sort of half finished manuscript of a different book which became bitter fruits and I had been sending things out on the slush pile and getting no responses and you know sort of ticking things off my excel yeah. spreadsheet but then when you win something it, that gives you an excuse to write back and say oh I know you haven't bothered reading it the first time mm. around but maybe now you'd like to read and so that kind of piqued a few people's interests and and then the second the half finished manuscript also won something else on a different matter and so then that meant again that the interest was even further peaked yeah. so that was how I ended up getting the agent um which was brilliant because then you've got somebody batting for you yeah. um and they are your link to the publishers so yeah that was and you're in Singapore during this time I was in Singapore my agent is in London right. and the the deals were always going to be in London yeah um and Commonwealth yeah yeah um yeah but yeah so I in fact I flew over for like 48 hours to to do the deal with the agent which was really exciting quite knackering and very stressful but yeah, yeah it was it was it was great do you miss the work the law work the law work. I do yeah, yeah. I mean it was never a, a decision to give it up yeah. um I never dreamed that I would change careers in the way that I have um I always thought I would have my time off with mm -hmm. my baby and then yeah. I'd go back to work and we'd move back to London and life would resume um because we decided to stay in Singapore, it's actually very hard to work um, part-time yeah. as a lawyer and um, with my young children. You know, I don't really want to go yeah. back yeah. into private practice, that sort of hellhole. It's <laughs> <laughs> hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's very hard. But yeah, I do miss it. And do you think that having a background like that brings a lot to your fiction? Do you think that that's... Um, the, because there's an element of story, isn't, isn't it? Definitely, and yeah. I was a litigator, and that's, that is about presenting. It's got to be coherent, yes. it's got to make sense. I was not a criminal lawyer, so it's not nothing to do with, you know, I, no. I researched the crime like I'd do anything else, the law. Um, but, yeah, I think you probably do have a specific kind of a brain, perhaps, as a lawyer. I mean, there are a lot of lawyers who've become writers. Oh, yeah, um, I know a few. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, Maybe maybe there is something to it. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's interesting. We had a, a wonderful um, author in the other day, Josephine Moon, um, and just in reference to your spreadsheet. So it seems that a lot of authors keep spreadsheets, <laughs> and she told me she had a hundred rejections. Yeah, and she kept going. Yeah, I mean, I think that's astounding. What career? I mean, you can't you can't be prepared for that, can you? No. You've got to be I mean, pretty. I mean, I guess maybe acting, you would have that yeah. many rejections. But there's not a lot of career. Uh, there's not a lot of careers out there where your work is being knocked back. Yeah, I guess. But I suppose you. you uh, I sort of saw it as being a bit of an entrepreneur. Like you're, yes. you're kind of your own business. And I think you know there must be hundreds of startup businesses or entrepreneurs, you know, who do get knocked oh. back all the time. Yeah. And I mean, yes, it w I suppose you could just say, well that's it then I'm going to give up but I, you know if you really know that that's what you want to do then you've got yeah. to keep battling on yeah yeah I, I, I mean I think all credit to, to you guys because I think it's a solitary occupation but you yeah. know and you, you you make it more social by you know belonging to writing groups but ultimately it's up to you and the work isn't it yeah, yeah. you've got to get those words yeah. in the penny jar um, a lot of people talk about where they write and how they write what's your style um 
really annoyingly, we've got this lovely room with a beautiful desk that overlooks the garden that I don't write in at all. Um, and I, <laughs> I was say, oh, that sounds lovely, but yeah, you don't no, go in there. I sit at the kitchen table on a very uncomfortable chair um, with my computer laptop, um, and it appears to be the only place that I can write books. So. We'll, we will never be able to get rid of that table or that chair, I'm afraid, yeah. so, unless I become something else. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, and so is this the style of writing that you think you're going to pursue? Like, is it going to be procedural crime? Is that your interest? I do, but I enjoy lots of different things. Um, what do you enjoy reading? I do read a lot of crime. I enjoy a so lot of I. crime. Um, but I, I don't like to just read crime, I think, mm. um, you know, I like to kind of make my brain work in a different way. So um, I'll read anything, quite honestly. I mean, mm. I like reading. I just was in a bookshop. I bought some Sherlock. I mean, I know Sherlock Holmes is crime. Yeah. So I've kind of done myself <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the front there. Um, but I, um, oh, I mean, anything. I, lo- I, I love yeah. all kinds of stories. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, going back to the flower girls, I want to talk about nature versus nurture mm. um, because, and we touched on that a little bit earlier on about the backgrounds of these children that that possibly murder. Um, do you think? I mean, you 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 also see slightly older children, like teenagers, and you know, committing ho- ho- horrendous acts of crime. Uh, the ones I come to mind particularly are the mass shootings. Mm. You know, I mean, they're yep. usually young people. Um, what makes a person that? You know, is it it, do you think it's environment? Do you think, or that some of us are born evil? I, I mean, in my own opinion, I yes. can't see how when a baby is presented, a babe in arms, it, you could ever say, well, they were just evil. I just, it doesn't doesn't work for me logically, rationally. Right. I think it um, has to be what they have experienced in their life. I think people don't like that as a, solution um because it's as if we're sort of giving them an excuse and saying well you know they wouldn't have done that if they'd have had a different upbringing but i i I don't know why that upsets people so much because then wouldn't it be better to give people these better Mm. upbringings Mm. um i'm sure that we have genetic propensities to certain things to certain things that excite us or certain things that thrill us um certain emotions or responses to things it makes me think of war-torn countries and where people engage um young children as foot soldiers or Mm. as soldiers you know um and particularly a story comes to mind set in the sudan um an author that i agent called majoktoba and you know these kids are recruited at six and seven and Mm. eight and some of them take to it really well to you know what they're forced to do or what they're made to do and to murder and kill but others struggle with it forever and that to me is always quite interesting Mm. it's a different kind of scenario though isn't it i mean i think you know just as you could have some children who are you know they're all given a musical instrument and some of them will be just generally more talented at it than others um, does that mean that they have a musical gene? And I don't know. I mean, it's a it's a really complicated scenario. I think if you look at the mass shootings, I think there in particular you have there is a, a certain type of personality that is drawn to these kind of crimes. Um, I read one of the books that I read was Dylan Claybold's mother, um, a mother's reckoning, Sue Claybold, and he was obviously the Columbine mm-hmm. shooter, one of the Columbine shooters. And how old was he? 
Um, he was in his teens. Yeah, 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 yeah 15, yeah. 16. Mm. And she had no idea. And they seemed like a perfectly normal family. And, I mean, that's one of the reasons in this book that I set up that... Mm. Um, you know, Laurel and Rose, they don't come from a neglected background. They're no. not They're not forced to, you know, they're not abused in any way. They're not, you know, on the face of it. And um, and, she, and this Mrs. Claybold was of the same view. She said she didn't, she just did not understand. But whether she spotted it or not, something has happened in that boy's experience of the world to make him think that this is a good idea. I, it doesn't seem that it's a genetic Mm. cause is it was it the friend that he was hanging out with was it the fact that he was just a loner mm. did he start to believe in a sort of paranoid way that the world was out to get him i think one of the people one of the descriptions of that crime has been one of the boys was out to murder one of them was out to commit suicide so again these different motivations that kind of on the face of it look very mm. similar but really are not um I don't know it's it's hard to generalize I just I think it's good to have the discussion it's good to think about it and good to kind of um analyze you know what's oh, yeah, going on without without sort of leaping I know they're yeah. upsetting and I know that they're really emotive and make people really frightened this idea yeah. but you've got to face it because then we can try and prevent it absolutely look the book is called the flower girls it's it's a great read it is a harrowing story but it's a really compelling read great characters um and a shock ending i think um uh, you know read it absolutely read it thank you um alice clark platts for speaking with us today thanks cheryl If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audio books are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 
Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.